When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So, we are so excited here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room to be featuring not our last conversation with Lev Raphael, but the last of this three-part series that we were so grateful um, Lev had agreed to. So, if you haven't listened to parts one and two with Lev yet, hit the pause button, listen to parts one and two, and then come back and check out part three. Um, Part two, how to write a sex scene, ended with a question where I asked Lev about the Jewish feminist and queer Jewish literary intersection and tradition. So we pick up right back where I left off with Lev at the end of part two, and we get into so much conversation here where the three of us, Lev... Erica and myself all talk about what it means to have a queer writing identity. Uh, We talk about our Jewish identities, which are very unique to the three of us. And just what it even means to come out as a writer. Um, And it can go into so many different directions. And there's so many authors who are mentioned here. So please check out the episode blurb on our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. And you will get to see a write-up of our favorite moments with Lev um, in this part three, but also all the different writers who are mentioned and their works. Um, So we're really excited to bring you this three-part series. And here is our theme song, Lover Man. excited for you to talk about the idea of coming out twice, but especially with being, you know, having a queer and Jewish identity. And um, like when it comes to your work, um, Erica Jung's work, um, even though I don't think she identifies as queer, but um, in terms of the feminist Jewish lens, but also, um, Right, I would say Larry Kramer, Tony Kushner, um, that it's such an interesting intersection. And 
I guess what I'm trying to get at is not that there's a reason why I'm not trying to harp on like why some of these texts haven't been turned into Hollywood films, but I sometimes do wonder, is it because of the intersectionality? Is it because it isn't an orthodox tale? Um, I, I think that I think you, you've really got it because I, I, in my in, in, in my touring over the years and in in some reviews too, I, I have found that yeah, um, it, being a queer Jew might not be controversial at the moment for in many circles, but 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 representing it on it can be difficult. you know I've had people actually say to me, about my memoir, my Germany, which talks which talks about uh, my uh, my connection to Germany, to real and imagined Germany through my Holocaust survivor par parents. I've had people say, "Why did you have to mention being gay? This is only Jewish people have said this. Jewish readers have said this to me. Why did you have to mention being gay?" And I said, "Well, it's a memoir, right? <laughs> so, and that's part of who I am." And they said, "Well, no, you shouldn't have to say that. It's distracting." And I think by distracting, they actually mean embarrassing. And I think it's it's you know it's difficult for for a minority to stand out in more than one way yeah. uh, because so many of us who are in minorities feel besieged. I mean, right now, um, being an American Jew is, seems uh, somewhat treacherous uh, uh, after all the violence around the country. I think um, being vulnerable twice over or being called, um, being seen as vulnerable twice over is a lot for people to deal with. Uh, but, you know, I, I had to do it. I mean, that's who I was. I came out as Jewish first in the because I had no real positive Jewish identity at all. Uh, and so that was my first journey. And it was good preparation. It was good. Uh, it was an opening act for coming out as, as being gay, as being queer, um, because I already knew that there would be people who would be surprised, startled, disappointed. Why didn't you tell me? Or, or, or how, do I, how do I perceive you now? that you are presenting yourself as different than you were before, even though what, what I was doing was just speaking my truth. Mm. So, so I think you're right. I think these, I think that there are certain texts that, uh, and, and that will might not translate well because people are afraid to do them. But I think it's so interesting that you bring up the intersectionality because that was what made your work so vital to me as a young person mm -hmm. um, was I had a Jewish identity because I'd grown up in a community where there were Jews, but I'd spent the year between uh, about 18 and 19 pushing that identity as far away from myself as I could and really just discovering for myself what was important about it to me. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. Um, you know, coming through the other side of that experience, really embracing it and understanding it. And I mean, you mentioned feminism, Jewish feminism is sort of, you know, essential. I mean, you, you just kind of, in my experience, you just kind of grew up with them hand in hand. 
Sometimes. But when it sometimes for me, yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you're lucky, if you're lucky. And 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 Jewish feminists changed the face of American Judaism. That's just Mm -hmm. I mean, without them it would not be what it is today. It would not be as open and as diverse as it is today. Oh yeah. Yeah, At every level. I mean, starting just with the basic basic uh, uh, starting just with the basic things like uh, liturgy. I mean, Jewish liturgy changed thanks to to Jewish feminists. Sure. But then it was then coming into my identity as a queer person that was really complicated Mm. um, and complicated by my Jewish identity. So, I mean, when I found when I found Love's books, it was like. Here's a way to be all of that. Yeah. Well, and then and then you start to find who Lev's in company with, right? And I'm sorry, I know you're with us, Lev, but I'm saying that the third person has a point that I first found myself and everyone who's listened knows that I came out the year after Call Me By Your Name was published. In 2007, it's published. I come out in 2008 as a freshman in high school. And in that novel, like that's where Call Me By Your Name and Dancing on Tisha B'Av have that, I mean, I think Andre Osman was inspired by you. I mean, I don't know. I haven't talked with him. Um, so Andre Osman, you can come on. Um, that would be wonderful. Um, but there's this whole, with Elio trying to figure out his sexuality, he's also starting to wear the Star of David. And his mother and the parents are Jewish, but I don't know if you both remember, but what his mother says is, do not wear that out because you will be marked in Italy as being openly Jewish. And he takes a risk and is ready to free himself and identify as Jewish and as a certain queer desire, a queer desire he has, right? And, you know, in a way it's also similar to, I can't remember, oh, I can't remember now. Sorry, Tony Kushner. I can't remember the protagonist of Angels in America. Um, but do either of you know, who's the protagonist? Um, oh, okay. The only person who's popping into my head is Roy Cohn, so. No, 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 not him. I know. Um, I know. The one who um, works at the law office and, you know, again, right, too, he's very openly Jewish. Um, and there are, right, there is a whole collection, but I think what we're circling around is, it doesn't seem though that there's this mass consumership of it. Um, I think that's a, I think that holds true for queer writing in general. I, there was a period in the late 80s and early 90s where I think a uh, number of publishers thought, uh, believed that queer writing would be the next big crossover writing. So someone like Urvashi Vide um, got close to um, a quarter million dollar advance for a book on gay rights that uh, apparently did very poorly, uh, even though she was a, a, a dynamic and exciting speaker and thinker. And it just, it just, it was a, a cultural moment that didn't happen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, those books did not take off. And there could, it, it might have been the wrong time. It could have been the shadow of AIDS. I mean, there are lots of different reasons for it. Um, and nobody knows for sure. So I think that moment has passed. Um, but but it's hard to say. Maybe it'll come in a different. Maybe it, oh, another I think it's here now. moment like it will come. I think, come. It's, I think it's, it's here. Oh. Um, sorry, I was gonna say it's here. That's great. These, these violent delights by uh, Micah um, Nermerver. I want to say Nermerver something to that effect. Um, and I'm not sure if you know um, Nirvana is here by Hamburger. Um, these are like two. New- oh, Aaron Hamburger. Yes. Yes. Aaron Hamburger. Um, yes. His, his, his short stories are marvelous. Wonder- yeah. So I, I see the community, but that also could just be an Erica knows I cultivate. Like I keep my eye on the queer Jewish intersection of literature, but right. I mean, Erica, it seemed like you were enthusiastic that it's happening too. Well, I mean, I think I, I have a, my, my theory on, on, on why it it shifted has a lot to do with um, we had sort of hit a point with with AIDS where the landscape was shifting and it was it was becoming sort of more less 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 visible as a dead like the immediacy of death was less visible and at the same time we were seeing sort of the emergence of things like don't ask, don't tell. And then we had the, the, the contract with America and that real heavy sort of political push from the right to suppress a lot of things. And so it kind of got squashed just as it was really picking up momentum. But I think now, especially with the sort of more expansive view that people in general are taking on gender and gender related issues and with the expansion of things like marriage equality we're going to start seeing a shift to sort of less niche marketing and 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 more expansive exploration in mainstream stuff. Um, at least I kind of hope. That's a very hope. Yeah, that I was going to say that's a really hopeful analysis. And I think, you know, it, 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 one can look back, we can look back at what didn't happen, but who, who would have predicted in the 90s that marriage equality would become as uncontroversial as it has, even though there are people who are trying to chip away at it. I mean, who would have thought that it would, that it, that that social change, that social, social acceptance would be on, a, on, you know, on, in the express lane. I mean, sure. yes, people have been fighting for it for decades, but when the change happened, it happened very fast. Sure. I mean, I think about Hawaii and when Hawaii first started talking about it in, 1989, 
there's a mark now of those who knew what it was like to um, gain marriage equality, which would be my generation, and then what it's like to be born, um, like not really remembering that there was a fight about marriage equality. But I would say the fight right now, in my opinion, is kind of, you know, what Lev, you just said, is an Erica not to tokenize, like how not to tokenize, but also how to be so boldly queer, boldly Jewish, boldly these intersections, but not like, okay, we've checked the box. Like, cause I'm starting to kind of see a shift in narratives right now where I, and I would say that um, for a straight audience, it seems that sometimes they just want to fill out the questionnaire that they've read. Like they've educated themselves, so they're fine and they can move on. And I, I still think that all the, given all that, I still think that um, a book in which a queer person is suffering and miserable is more likely to be successful with a straight audience. Yeah. Uh, I, the one exception that one exception I've seen lately is um, the novel less the comic novel uh, Greer, where right? yeah by Greer where he's with it's not his queerness that uh, so much that he's suffering about but just it, it seems to focus more on career uh, I I was thrilled that that won a Pulitzer and that the book is doing so well but I and I'm not naming any other names but there are books that I've read that critics have raved about and I think okay it's it's a new century and this suffering person sounds like he or she could have been suffering 40 years ago that that doesn't mean that people aren't in pain about their queerness but writing about it as if it's um, being a reviewer and calling a book like that brilliant or mm. revelatory is seems really retrograde yeah, well, we'll talk offline about that. Uh, that's some juicy <laughs> gossip. Um, but I will say, I'm jumping up and down for joy. I haven't read them yet, but I just got Bathhouse from the library um, by PJ Vernon um, Ooh. About, about cruising and the bathhouse scene. Um, and then I just got oh, Let's Get nice. Back. And then there's Let's Get Back to the Party. That has been a buzz too. Um, I don't know, yeah, I think it's exciting. I'm excited and I'm optimistic that there's more, like, I mean, Erica and I left have had a lot of debates. I don't know if I would call them debates, but I would call them generational, intergenerational conflicts of queerness. Like, cause I keep seeing it in the reparative, kind of, okay, I didn't live through the trauma of HIV and AIDS. Like I lived through where I'm on Discovy and I'm living through what it was like to be at a queer club and what it was like to have boyfriends in high school. And, but I still have a lot of intergenerational friends. Like I have queer friends who are, you know, baby boomers. And I think it's important because those intergenerations, the intergeneration discussion is necessary. And I feel like that's where we should be, like that space needs to be opened up more because- Well, to quote, yeah. Sorry, oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, I, well, we have we have to know our own history, and um, you know, to go back to go back to Torah uh, in the Book of Amos, the prophet says, "Tell your children of it." I mean, uh, every generation has to know the Jewish story, and every queer generation needs to know its story as well, yeah. and tell it. And I, I think that's one of the things I've talked about lately a bunch, is that sort of sense of loss that I'm a Gen Xer. I'm about 20 years younger than, or 20 years older than Andrew. Um, and that yeah. sense of loss and that absence of those role models and those examples and those people and that, that leadership that would have guided people in my generation into our queer identity and into embracing and understanding that and sort of growing into our whole authentic selves. When we did our Pride Month roundtable, one of the things I talked about was how that's been a part of my experience that it has made it that much more important to me to understand and embrace the importance of being a role model and being able to do that for people who are younger than I am, who, who need that because there was so much loss that that took that from mm -hmm. from my generation but i would um, say it goes the other way around too you need my perspective too oh right? no question exactly i think i think that's where it's so important it's not a one-sided like both sides are informing each other and that's necessary it's also why i say to my friends hey we should like you should seek out those who are older than you because you know, I love Fire Island. I like the pines. I'm not not putting down the pines. Again, I would love to film Dancer from the Dance there. Uh, uh, but let's just say that there's also an escapism happening right now, especially after, well, the pandemic's still happening. But in some minds, the pandemic is gone, especially if you're there partying. And it's also... I would say there is a lot of, um, you know, privileges that go unchecked in spaces like say Fire Island where it is run by, um, you know, how much access you have to money or, right? There's, right? There's layers. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that the dirty secret uh, in almost everything in America is that we don't talk about class? Yeah, because it doesn't exist, Lev, right? Right there. Right. So that, you know, so so people, no matter what group uh, we talk about, the class is always an issue uh, between groups and, and in, for inside a group. I mean, uh, and that's something I was really aware of because my parents came here with absolutely nothing. And we had very little money when I was growing up. And I went to a school where uh, in my elementary school the the jewish kids uh came from families that had been in the states several generations already so they did not feel like strangers and they were all uh, much uh had much more money than we had and i was keenly aware of that uh at time after time after time i was always being reminded of it that that I came from nothing um, and that they were all very uh, comfortable bourgeois uh, American Jews. And that's 
something that I don't see talked about uh, very much in the Jewish community. And it's, you know, maybe it is being talked about somewhere in queer communities, but I haven't encountered that. It's, it just feels to me when I read news stories about almost anything in America, class seems to be left out. Mm. Yeah, Erica talks about a lot about you and Adam, Adam Katz, he's, um, you know, well, Erica's filling the co-anchor position, which I'm grateful for. Um, but Erica and Adam talk a lot about like the Lower East Side, you know, Jewish culture. And then I always say, well, I also know those who are Jewish from the Upper East Side. And right, right? I mean, and Otto Herman Kahn <laughs> and the Guggenheim family is a rare Jewish family in the Gilded Age. Um, yes. And especially too, and they're German Jewish. And um, right, there's so many layers too. Like, I mean, I know I have friends who are Persian Jewish and like, that's a, another layer. And I think, that's a, yes, go ahead. Well, and that's something that I, I, I worked with in Rosedale and Love that, uh, that he was looked down upon by other Jews, his own family, in fact, because his mother had not married a German Jew. She'd married a Russian Jew. Mm-hmm. And I grew up uh, in uh, Jewish New York where there was still uh, the hangover of that uh, disparity between Eastern European Jews and, and German Jews. I think that's, that's shifted um, and faded over the years. But I remember, uh, I remember just the, the, both the rivalry and the uh, animosity back and forth that would sometimes be sparked by that difference. Yeah. So well, that I, I, and that was very, very much. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. I'm like Lev saw when I wrote about my 23 and Me, but I'm Ashkenazi on my mom's side, and I'm Sephardic on my dad's side, and the Sephardic is Italian Jewish, which is another very specific, um, you know, group of how they practice and layers of trauma because they didn't talk about it and neither did my mom's side who were from um, Czechoslovakia um, who were Jewish. And, you know, that, and I know Erica and I, Erica talks about what it's like for me to come to Judaism being raised Catholic, which is a really interesting experience. Um, And yeah, along the way, I've been discredited as being not being Jewish, which is like, let's just say, I think what you're getting at, Lev, is when class is left out of a lot, marginalized groups, it doesn't mean that they're not also pitting themselves against each other. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Nobody, nobody is free of, of bigotry or prejudice. I mean, that's just, that's just a fact of life. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I, 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 you mentioned DNA, I think. I, I, did I tell you guys this last time that um, our, our DNA shows that we are actually 5.4% Scandinavian, which is, which is really a delightful surprise for me because when I've been on book tours in Germany, people, keep approach, people have asked me if I was Norwegian, even Nor- Scandinavian, Swedes, Swedes and Norwegians, until I started speaking assumed I was Norwegian. So those genes are evidently, in my makeup, uh, pretty uh, pretty aggressive Viking genes. Yes, there you go. And how about you, Erica? What about me? Did you do, have, have you done a DNA test? I have not, but you know, I mean, 
I have a French surname. I know where my dad's family came from, both sides. I know where my mom's family came from, but uh, I could probably, you know, learn some interesting things because the French surname makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Erica's surname is uh, Grumet. Just so everyone um, uh, is aware. My, but my father's family came from Galicia, which is that sort of place Mm. where one day it was Austria-Hungary and another day it was Poland and the next day it was something else. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it could be in it could be in Ukraine now. Oh. Uh, and and uh, it's funny you mentioned Hungary. This has been a time of real discovery. Somebody, a genealogist that my brother's in, in touch with, uh, found my paternal grandfather's Hungarian wedding certificate. Oh, you've posted oh, wow. about this on your, um, right? Is that on your yeah. blog? Okay. Uh, yeah, that was on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, yeah. Okay. I, and it was on my well, I'm Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Um, my mom's so what, so what part? So what part of Czechoslovakia? Um, well, that is the difficult one that I can't really find a lot about. But um, the Czechoslovakian side, their last name was Michelin, M-I-C-H-E-L-I-N. Uh-huh. Um, like the tire. <laughs> um, and then my, the Sephardic side, their last name was Cairo. Um, and then wow. the Hungarian is Tirpok, T-I-R-P-O-K. And the Hungarian uh -huh. side, I found that we were, um, they're from Budapest. Um, okay. But then I got that also I had ancestors in Kiev, which um, I don't know, the more I've looked into it, the anxiety of my grandmoms, my grandmoms, well, my one grandmom, uh, bless her, is 96 and she still drives. So please, good vibes for my grandmom. That's my mom's mom. Um, but both grandmoms have, um, well, my dad's mom passed away, but um, anxiety, like OCD, depression. Um, my Nana had depression and it was undiagnosed. And I just feel there's a lot of generational trauma that I've started to therapeutically work through um, because of the distance. And like when I bring up about Judaism, um, my dad's mother started to talk more about it before she passed away a year and a half ago. She actually started to bring up how um, she's from Philadelphia. She was from Philadelphia and actually grew up <laughs> right near where Benjamin Netanyahu grew up um, in West Oak Lane, um, which is near Germantown, Philadelphia. Um, and Noam Chomsky also grew up there. Um, and her neighbor, um, she started to talk about how she went to a shiva and the Jewish deli. And I'm like, banana, I thought you always said you were Italian. She's like, well, I love Jewish culture. I'm like, okay. It was just, it was very interesting because like to have that kind of intimate experience with Judaism, like my Nana would teach me yeah. Jewish word, like Yiddish, um, um, or just, she knew a lot about culture. And I'm thinking it would be very interesting in 1930 to go to your neighbor's Shiva if you didn't have oh any boy, Jewish sure connection. Would. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, really. 
Yeah. Well, you know, you know, my my first novel, Winter Eyes, is about a son of Holocaust survivors who's raised Catholic. I'm just oh, only I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, yep. And it, yeah, they, his his parents uh, hide his, uh, his their true identity from the world and from him, and he only discovers that he is um, that he's actually Jewish, and then he he has to discover his sexual identity as well. Mm. Mm. Well. Yeah, and then I discovered my mom's side, the Michelins, when I was actually at Ellis Island with my parents, and we did the database search, and I saw that they were all registered as Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. interesting. Well, and then my, <laughs> well, I mean, and I don't want to hold you for too long, but I'll tell you this. I know you and Erica will get a kick. I don't know if you'll get a kick out of it or be upset, but either way, when my dad first met my mom, my grandma, who's 96, hi, Helen. Uh, uh, she's would be so happy I'm wearing juniors because she lives right near the bakery now in New Jersey because that's where they're baking the cheesecakes. Um, but that's a whole other uh, <laughs> separate conversation um, because of Brooklyn real estate. But um, she, when she found out, um, I think when she first met my father, um, and she thought he was Jewish, which now I know he ha is Jewish in his ancestry, but she's like, oh, I'm going to serve him pork and test him. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's my grandma. <laughs> and I was like, grandma, what happens if he did eat the, if he didn't eat the pork? And she's like, well, I would have known that he's Jewish. And I'm like, grandma, grandma, how about if he's just not kosher? And she's like, well, <laughs> I know, it was just, it's funny, but, and she's also always made a point out of Jewish apple cake. She loves, I don't know if you've e ever eaten it, but it is really good. Um, and again, it's, I've learned that superstitions and there's like Kabbalah mysticism that she's done with us at New Year's where we hide silver dollars. And I'm, I'm like, why are we hiding a silver wow. dollar? And she's like, because you need good luck. And then you have to like eat certain things on New Year's. It's just, I've realized that sometimes- Did you put a red ribbon on your bed or under your mattress? No, I didn't do that. Um, but we do have to eat um, uh, lentil soup. That's what you're supposed to eat on New Year's. Um, uh, but I know like in the South- I did not know that. Yeah, in the South, don't they eat- um, Black eyed peas. Black eyed peas, thank you. Uh, Erica, uh, but that's right. Yeah, that that's I do good. know. Yeah. So, do I not have good luck if I eat lentil soup at, at any other time, or it only works on New Year's? I, think I love lentil soup. I love any making time it. is not good luck. Well, I'd I think it's good luck for your heart. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I know the taste. It's the other thing. Oh, and you're not supposed to eat any kind of. Well, now I'm a pescatarian, so I'd be okay. But you're not supposed to eat any kind of animal that walks backwards. If it can walk backwards, your luck is gonna go backwards. That's all from wow. Helen Totten. That's my Helen Totten advice. Um, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of superstition. I'm, I'm trying to imagine animals that don't know how to walk backwards. I mean, doesn't every animal know how to back away from trouble or? or well, I think, it's, I think it comes down to you can do any animal who walks on two legs but not four. got it. Not four. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Well, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank, thank you, thank you for that PSA. Thank you for that PSA. <laughs> you're welcome. But um, yeah, I mean, you, Eric and I could spend hours. Well, we'll have <laughs> Lev on again, definitely. And I know Lev, you, Erica, and I will all be in contact. But it is that that trauma. I think what I realized is sometimes if you're so close to that source of pain and you show that in, in coming out of shame, you show that in my Germany, if you're too close to the pain, like my grandparents, well, my grandmoms, my grandfathers were not Jewish. Um, like, cause I just said Helen Totten. Totten is my grandfather's last name. Yes, I have some wasp heritage. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> maybe that would, uh, be a cachet in a work novel, but um, that if it's too close, there's just not enough analytical distance of absolutely talking about it because it just causes so much. Um, well, maybe PTSD um, and oh yeah, oh, yeah. well, it, well, I've heard Holocaust survivors say that they don't want to talk about what happened to them because they don't want to re-experience it and once was enough. And, uh, and I've always respected that, you know, uh, over the years, people have told me, well, my, my parents don't want to talk about the war. My grandparents don't talk about the war. How do I make them? How do I get them to do it? And I said, you, you can't, you can't, uh, you, you can be encouraging, you can wait, you can listen, but it's, it, it really, it's really territory that should be left alone if and respected if people do not want to go there uh, because it, it was so horrific and I am, I appreciate that and understand it and I think the and I think that's a, an issue for many people who are who are close to uh, immigrant parents who came from uh, any place where <laughs> where there was um, trauma the, the the parents or grandparents don't want to discuss it. You know, mm -hmm. and so, and I found that uh, traveling around the country doing, doing readings and talks that people from from many many different backgrounds uh, uh, tell me the same thing that there's this hole, there's this absence of memory, uh, there's this uh, gap of information and and this history that they don't know, which they really want to know, mm. but it, they can't approach it. Yeah. Well, as an interfaith child, let me just say your work, Lev made me feel seen and validated. And there's not a lot of interfaith Jewish um, texts that I can always point to, but I feel that there is this, I think if you dig a lot into your history, let's just say interfaith is probably present in uh, a majority of families um, that but again, it's difficult because then you feel that you don't belong to a certain community or tribe. And we don't have to talk about that because that's a whole other discussion. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's comfortable to know your identity, right? I agree. Yeah. I, to know where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think though, and I think we, we touched on this last time we spoke when um, when we talked about the generational discussion Mm. that I know from in my family, there were stories that my grandfather wouldn't tell my mother or her brothers when they were growing up, but he was willing and comfortable and able to tell them to me. You. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Because it, it, and that is a pattern that I've seen over and over that the the communication between the uh, grandparents and grandchildren, uh, skipping a generation, is not laden with trauma. Wow, that yeah. happened with my grandma before she died. She yep. told me all of these yep. things, and I started to tell my dad. He said, "I never heard about that." And I said, "Well, yep, she feels comfortable." And also, right, if you're not the child. The distance is comforting, but also you want to pass the narrative. And I mean, my mom's mother did it when she started to open up to me about a Jewish tailor in their New Jersey town. And I'm like, huh, like just I think it's also it's so interesting. I mean, um, and there's a novel there <laughs> just from that whole um, that experience. But so you're saying that that is a very common phenomenon. Um, and it's great, and it's great, and it's great material for writing. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 yeah. and, and, and and that's the reality. Writers see see the world in terms of material. We can't help it. I will say though, as a parent, like where we're at, losing those narratives so quickly now frightens me. Mm. Is yes, I is, need to make sure that, that that all of that is passed on to my own children who are 13 and 11. Yeah. But then and also, then, do you want to traumatize them? That's a whole, <laughs> she'll take that. That's the whole key. It's with, difficult, with, right? It's difficult and honest. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's difficult and honest, yeah. though. Mm -hmm. yep. The conversation you have with them at four or five or six is not the same as 10, 11, 12 or 18 or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. Um, well, and to me, that's the intersection of my coming out as gay and then figuring out, like coming out, coming out now as Jewish that like, I really, you know, I would say I feel very seen as queer in reconstruction spaces slash reform but i started to get really interested in the reconstruction movement um but that there is that passing down of and i know i'm not i'm not the first talking about this i know lev's talked about it erica you've talked to me about it there's a whole queer theory queer theory in the jewish question text about it but how hiv aids and the holocaust very different, right, um, on a global scale. I mean, yes, like the way they operated, but that that trauma is like what we're, you're saying, Erica, right now, is like losing the trauma, but also still telling the narrative. How do you, how do you still tell the narrative, but allow the other, the new generation to go forth? And that's yeah. I well, mean, maybe that's, that's something the two of you could be writing about. Yes, we should write about it, Erica. There we go. We should. I mean, it's something that you know, in in all of the years I I worked in, um, you know, HIV related fields and in, in predominantly in HIV education stuff, that was a constant and ongoing discussion. Was as, as treatment got better, as management got better, and now I mean, we've talked about it with with the advent of PrEP. Mm -hmm. and, um, well, and Lev, you don't even know who's coming after you in this part. So um, listeners, the week right after we air this, Sarah Schulman 
is going oh, to. Oh, wow. Be, um, yes, really please, please pass on my uh, best to her. It's been a long time since we met. Oh, I will. I will. Um, and okay, well, I know we, we've taken a lot of Lev's time, but um, <laughs> thank you, Lev. I think you gave Erica and I a great writing <laughs> task. And um, I'm really curious to see where queer Jewish literature, like these these new writers that we've mentioned, where the stories go, where um, intergenerational trauma, conflict. Um, but I also- There's a lot there. I, I also love, and you hear me say this all the time, embrace the and mm -hmm. it's yeah, about being always. all of it i mean that that is that is my you know if if andrew's catchphrase is is we've, we've got, got this <laughs> yeah mine is we got this i am i am all about embrace the end and and you know they all know this yeah yeah well and <laughs> again let's just say too that love um to bring you into our behind the scenes um, I've taken on the optimistic hat usually, and then Erica and Adam say, well, we grew up with this Jewish pessimism. And I'm like, but there is Jewish optimism. There's, there's optimistic there comedy. I'm like, I look to Joan Rivers. She, she knew how to embrace the optimism while also, I mean, Erica, you do too. I'm just, as a... <laughs> as that it, there's a there's a large spectrum and then i always make a joke that sometimes i feel like sharing clueless but that's a different <laughs> idea of judaism um you know we do not have to talk about that but i do think um there's a but lot of ways of expressing end, right you could express your end in different ways absolutely um, well this has been great yes yeah, so this has been great you, talking uh, to you guys again Yes. Thank um, you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. And we are going to say bye to Lev, but end this recording so I can find out the gossip about the book that he wasn't going <laughs> to say on air. So bye, listeners. <laughs> okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Uh, please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now here's our theme song, Loverman, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman in a new rendition co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is supported by our official sponsor, Words Matter Bookstore, located in historic Pittman, New Jersey. Please check out Words Matter Bookstore's site at wordsmatterbookstore.com. You can follow Words Matter Bookstore on Facebook, Words Matter Bookstore, and on Instagram at Words Matter Bookstore. Thanks to the owner, Carol, for all of her support.